Welcome to Season 6 of Business Book Talk. Every week, we have a business book author talk about their book and discover why they wrote it. The conversations are casual in tone, but we try and dig a bit deeper into the subject of the book and discover the author's background and their core ideas. I'm sure you'll like this week's book, so let's get started. Hey, everybody. It's Bob again, and I've got the 10% Entrepreneur, Living Your Startup Dream Without Quitting Your Day Job. I've got Patrick McGinnis on the line with us today. Patrick, I wanted to ask you, were you influenced by the four-hour work week and you just wanted to beat out that guy? <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> no, although I guess if you take 10% of 40, although I don't know anybody who actually works a 40-hour work week these days, but if you did, I guess it would be four. So I did realize that later. But no, my book is is very different in, in sort of the way that, um, that it works. And in fact, I tried to do the four-hour work week. So I like the idea of that. And I picked up the book and I read it and I failed pretty miserably at trying to do it. And so I tried to figure out what would work for me. And that's how I came up with the 10% Entrepreneur. Nice. Well, I think it's brilliant advice because, you know, a lot of, as a photographer for years and years, and I'd meet a lot of budding photographers and they'd all say, Bob, I want to become a freelance photographer. I says, that's fantastic. The secret to freelance photography is to have a full-time job. And nobody got it. And now somebody put a book out. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> that's awesome. But it's so true. I mean, you got to you've got to find yourself. If you can't get out, if you can't go out there and get C capital or a loan from a bank, you have to fund yourself or or have the ability to fund yourself. And having a full time job is a great way to fund yourself. Exactly. There are really two big picture elements to the ten percent entrepreneur. And it's funny. I was talking to somebody this morning, and I hear this a lot from people who say, "I wish I had been told this before I started my company." And the big ideas are number one that going out and doing something without enough financing or the ability to survive while you're building your company puts a lot of stress and strain on you. So the minute you quit your job and start something new, unless you have money coming in the door, you have some family money or you've made money, you're giving yourself a very short runway that you can uh, basically have in order to build your business. So say you have a year of savings in the bank. If you don't reach your level of success that you can sustain yourself within a year, you're going to have to start looking for a job again. So you put a lot of pressure in that way. The second thing is when you are a 10% entrepreneur, it's not just about freelancing. So lots of people will do freelancing on the side or have their what a lot of people call it a side hustle. But being a 10% entrepreneur is about ownership. It's about building something that you're the owner of so that even if you're not working there one day and you're off doing other things, you have partners or you have other things going on in the business that it keeps on growing. And so the idea is to build a bunch of ownership stakes and things that will be there whether you're sort of engaged on a, on a day-to-day basis or not. You may be engaged, but you also may have partners or people that you've invested in. Mm, makes sense. Let's dig into that, you know, building your stake, your 10% stake into a, into a business. A lot of people think that if you're going to start up or get involved with the business, you have to do it 100%. This is what makes your theory a little bit different. It's, it's 10% of your time and energy and effort, or is it 10% of a business and then 90% is handled by somebody else? So the way that it works is there's this idea that um, lots of people want to do something entrepreneurial, but quitting their day job and going in full-time doesn't make sense. It may not make sense because they can't afford to do it or it may not make sense because they're not sure 
if they want to be an entrepreneur, if they want to live on that sort of roller coaster of entrepreneurship. And so what I tell people is to dedicate 10% of your time and if possible your capital advising, investing in and getting involved with ventures on the side. So there takes many different forms. There's really a number of ways you can do it. There are five ways in the book, but just to simplify it, it's the first one is by being an angel investor. So you're investing in other people's companies and, and you're basically, you know, you're not part of the management team, but you're getting involved, helping out how you can. The second one is you're investing your time instead of money, and that's called being an advisor. And there it's the same idea. You're not necessarily running it day to day, but you're you're a supporter, you're there helping out, you're helping the business succeed, and you're learning as you watch the business grow. And then the other way to do it is actually to go on and start something. And you are the prime mover and maybe you bring in a partner to help you to scale it. But, you know, it's the idea that you have a day job, but when you're free time, you're starting a business that you may launch full time someday. But in the meantime, you're making making sure that it makes sense before you consider doing so. Yeah. Well, you know, what's interesting about the book, too, is, you know, you cover all this stuff in great detail, but then you also get into when is it time to quit that job or transition away from that job because the, your your endeavors have uh, got to a point where you say, well, I'm going to have to work full time on this or keeping that business running and then investing in another company. And then it means that you don't have to just do one company. You can do multiples. Absolutely. So for example, there, you can. I have some people in the book, and I have a couple of great stories of people. One guy, his name is Luke Holden, and he started a company called Luke's Lobster that now has over 20 stores all over the world, and he actually runs it full-time. But he started it when he was working full-time in a corporate job, and he did it on the side, and he got to a point where he realized he needed a partner. So he brought in a partner, and they they joined together, and so he could keep his day job because he couldn't afford to quit and work full-time in the business. And then once it was up and running and it was scaling and it was sustainable, then he jumped in full-time. So he's really gone and focused on that one business and now he runs it full-time. I have people in the book who stay in their day job and focus on one business full-time. And then on the other extreme, you can look at me. I started uh, about five years ago doing this and I have over 20 projects I'm involved with, none of which I've tried to found things and run them on the side. I haven't had anything that's really taken off. I've been more focused on it investing, advising, and getting involved with things more as a support person, providing capital and advice. So it just depends on where your interests lie and what your time is. But you mentioned in the question, you know, when do you know whether to go full time? And that's a question that a lot of people ask me. And it's really, it comes down to a, a basic equation. It's when you are working on something on the side, say as a founder, and you're thinking about do what you, maybe I want to do this full time. You have this flexibility to decide whether or not to go full time based on whether or not it can sustain the lifestyle that you need. So if you get to a point where you see, you know, this is really taking off, I can see a pathway that I could live off of this, that might be the moment. If it isn't, then maybe you find a partner who can help you to continue growing, but you don't have to throw everything into it and leave your day job to do so. You also have to get permission from other people in your life to do something like this because even though it's not that much of a risk and you can kind of coach it as a, oh, this is my hobby running this business, in the long run, there is a little bit of risk involved. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that I make 
really clear and what I wanted to do when I wrote the book was I didn't want this to be something illicit. I didn't want it to be something about hiding or running around behind your employer's back or doing something that was questionable ethically. I just I just think life's too short to, to throw your reputation away. Um, and so everybody that I talked to as I interviewed the book put their full name in the book. Their bosses know they're in this book. And why is that? It's because 10% entrepreneurs don't hide what they're doing. They don't they don't play in the gray areas and do things that are ethically questionable. Instead, they do a great job at their day job and then they do the things on the side that they want to do. And in fact, doing those things makes them more successful at their day jobs because they learn what it means to think like an entrepreneur and to be scrappy and they enjoy what they're doing so they bring new energy to the rest of their career. So what I've seen, and it's interesting, Bob, I've spoken several times now at Google, for example. Google is very keen to develop a bunch of 10% entrepreneurs within their workforce because we forget that Google is no longer a startup. And in fact, Google's a really big company. It's by, you know, depending on the day, it's the biggest company in the world by market cap. And so by having people pursue 10% entrepreneurship and take responsibility for thinking like an entrepreneur, they actually are able to create a culture that's far more entrepreneurial. You know, you used a very good word there, responsibility. And, and I remember back in the day, anytime I had a full-time job, I'd be going in and I would basically take over meetings and be like, oh yeah, let's do this and that. And I have all these great entrepreneurial, exciting ideas. And then I leave the meeting expecting everybody else to pick it up and do it. Part of being a responsible entrepreneur is owning your ideas and managing the ideas and, and following them up. Do you think that's a, a fundamental flaw in, in a lot of people that have an entrepreneurial spirit in a working environment? Yeah. So I think we have, I, I talk about this in the book a little bit, and I, I actually had a whole section on this. My editor made me cut it, which is I was disappointed about this <laughs> about this culture that I've noticed, which is this concept um, I call entrepreneurship Inc. And that's this. There's a whole industry out there that talks about entrepreneurship, but doesn't actually show you what it means to be an entrepreneur. And so you know, it's it's great to watch Shark Tank and you see somebody for five minutes and it looks great, but when you actually have to do the work of an entrepreneur, and I've done this and I've seen how hard it is. It's a lot of follow through, you know. It's it's very little glamour and lots of hard work and putting your nose to the grindstone. And so I think, uh, especially, I see this now with kids coming out of college. And I, I talk to everybody wants to be CEO of a company and entrepreneur, but they haven't thought about those. You know, the typical venture takes seven years to go from the first time they raise capital to that that day when you exit and make all this money. Those seven years are hard, hard work. It's it, And there are days when it's just not fun. And there are months when it's just not fun. And so having that follow through and that dog and determination, even when it isn't particularly fun to work at a startup or work at your own venture, is really what separates the wheat from the chaff. You know, and, and I also think a lot of times people are going in there with a delusional attitude. It's like, just because you're going to work like a dog and do all your things, if you're not doing the right thing, if you don't have a proper plan, if you're not executing, if you don't have the right people on the bus, blah, 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 it will fail. And in this universe, it's not like, oh, sorry, here's your money back. It's No, it's all gone. And you're, you know, that's when you're thankful you have a full-time job to recover from something like that. Absolutely. And I see so many smart smart people who are very successful in their day jobs, who have very prestigious day jobs, that for some reason, it's, it always blows my mind, and I think it's human nature that we're all, that entrepreneurs are by definition optimists, 
And so you find people who are extraordinarily successful who have a startup idea that is completely inappropriate from them. So you know, you have somebody who's really good at marketing and they work in consumer packaged goods and they want to invent a new type of airplane or something totally <laughs> nuts. And and I love, you know, I don't want to discourage. There always are people that will be disruptors and will be able to break the mold. But the vast majority of us should spend our time innovating in the spaces where we already have expertise. Like if you and I get together and try to invent the next generation of digital camera, chances are we're going to fail and we're going to spend a lot of money doing it. Yeah, I think for the biggest trap is self-delusion where I'm going to do this, it's going to be fantastic. In a couple of years, I'll be able to skip from my job into this. It'll be fantastic. And no, it's like you said, it's going to be a tremendous amount of work. But more than that, sometimes you got to let go of your baby. Like you might start your business with one idea and then a year later or six months later or two years later, you realize like, oh my gosh, this is a crazy idea. It's not going to work. We have to pivot. And the, the, the definition of pivot is not giving up. It's like taking your pre-existing resources and relationships and then pivoting the conversation to a new product. So do you think the concept of pivoting is, is critically important to this strategy? Yeah, it is. And I love that you that you kind of hit this point because if you are, and I, and I alluded to this earlier, but I'll, I'll kind of go into this with the pivot. If you jump into something full-time, say you have $100,000 of savings and you have two kids and your burn rate is 10 grand a month or something like that because you live in New York or whatever, or you, or, or you know you have exactly a year to figure something out. And it, you may spend this first six to nine months making tons of dumb mistakes. And by the time you come up with your pivot, the pivot that may very well be the thing that works, you're running out of money. And so you basically have no way to – you have no runway to execute that pivot and, and, and make it successful. And so again, the idea of, of, of this 10 percent strategy is that you can make mistakes. You may be a little slow. You may move slower because you're not working on it 20 hours a day. But you can make those mistakes. You can take things a little more calmly. You can, um, you can experiment more and not worrying about being thrown out of your house and, and having to move back in with your parents while you do that. Yeah, I think also a lot of people don't realize that I would say 80% of the startup is sitting around waiting for stuff to happen. I mean, you can be working tremendously hard, but it's waiting for people to make decisions or decide to use you or you realize that it's a six-month sales cycle before you're actually going to sell your, sell your first unit. So that is another thing. It gives you the luxury of time and, and the ability to say, okay, well, you know, I've got a, an indefinite runway to make this thing happen. Now, I'm not saying be lazy about it and, and kick back and do nothing. You're still going to have to work and push as hard as you can, but then you're just not going to get frustrated with people that don't get off the dime fast enough. That's so true. And, and in fact, I remember when I was getting my, uh, when I was in an MBA program, we, we talked about this and one of my professors who's a prolific professor of venture capital and startup said that for all the companies he's looked at in his career, it, the ones that are successful always take two times what they project in the business plan. And so even if you are very successful, chances are it's just going to take longer. And exactly to your point, a lot of what you're doing is waiting around, especially if you're really innovating. You may even have, I mean, I love the lean startup strategy. I think lean startup strategy, which if you haven't read the book, um, is a fantastic book by Eric Reese, And for me, was fundamental to the way I think about building businesses. But when you think about the lean startup strategy, the real innovation there is, is that you, you basically 
you you save your resources for uh, to invest in the things that are actually going to work, and that takes time, right? And so. I feel like it's very, uh, it's a very relevant idea to the to the ten percent concept. It's the idea that you're giving yourself more time and you're giving yourself more freedom to experiment before you jump in full time. What about these five steps we've been talking about? I mean, we we mentioned a little bit at the beginning, but is it critical that the person do those five steps? Is is it kind of like paramount that they do it, or can they kind of like, eh, I, I'm just going to do step one or two, or are they just deluding themselves? Yeah. So in terms of the steps, well, there's really the the way that I lay it out, um, you know, as you think about what you're going to do, there's really uh, a a progression that takes place. The first thing is is figuring out uh, what you actually should be doing because your time and your money and your talent is something that is not, um, you don't have unlimited amounts of any of them. And especially by definition, if you're in your 10%, it's not that you can simply spend all your time just uh, figuring out, you know, what you want to do with your time, and so the first step is really figuring out how to how to make the most of everything you're investing. And that, you know, I go through sort of some a couple of very detailed exercises. But the one part of that I find super interesting is that most people actually struggle to figure out where they should be spending their time in terms of the things they should be doing. They can figure out how much money they have, and they can figure out how much time they have, but they're not very good at figuring out what they're good at, and that part to me is so critical and that's the one that um, you, you really need to focus on because yeah you may get uh, you may get it a little wrong in terms of the time or the money that you can spend on something but if you invest those things poorly and if you haven't figured out what you need to be doing that's where you can get into trouble because you, you that knowing sort of where you should be spending your time and energy makes those things so much more valuable when you do invest them you're investing them it's sort of like you're putting everything into sort of turbo when you're when you're matching them with the things you do best and then once you go from there then you move into the point of actually kind of figuring out on an opportunity by opportunity basis how to determine which projects make more sense for you. So I see it as an integrated plan. You kind of have to go through each one of the steps. And as you do it, every time you do it, you, you learn and you're better for the next time. Yeah, and you're looking at a plan like that, it's almost imperative that you have some sort of mentor or somebody that you can uh, throw ideas off so that they can refocus you and making sure that you're not um, you know, going down the garden path and, and leading yourself astray. Absolutely. And one of the things that that I, I always remind people about this is this isn't something that you do locked in a room. This is really entrepreneurial ventures are are human endeavors and they're endeavors in which lots of different people contribute their talents. And just because you're 10% and not 100% uh, doesn't mean that you uh, you don't follow that rule. So a lot of what I spend my time on is finding people who can help me make smarter decisions than I would otherwise. And that means getting out there, talking to people, calling people, talking to people that I don't even know maybe and reaching out to them and getting their advice um, because those uh, insights are the insights that are going to allow you to, to decide um, not only wh- where you're spending your time but whether or not you're spending it appropriately. And so um, I, I fundamentally believe what I've kind of learned in my career and I'm sure many of, of people listening have learned this is you can work 150 hours a week but if you know the right person to ask to get the answer, you can cut that down substantially and get to the same answer. Absolutely. Sitting on both sides of the table, basically, you know, being able to to empathize with others, if you're, um, oh, here's a great example. If you've ever bought a car, sometimes it's, it's an uncomfortable experience. Well, you try selling a car, and then after doing that, 
go buy a car totally different experience so if you're going to be a manager you have to be uh you have to experience what it's like to work with a good and a bad manager so when you become a manager you can catch yourself being a good manager and catch yourself being a bad manager and, and steer yourself how important is it to have both those perspectives well it's it's it is super important and the, the thing is that you may not have them when you get started so for example you know i have um stories in the book about people who've never been entrepreneurs i have a, a woman who has a, a children's clothing company and she had always worked in big companies and she didn't know when she started her company on the side and it took her five years she worked on it on part-time she actually just recently is now full-time because the company's really taken off but she surrounded herself with people who had other skills than her and who could give her their perspective. So she was really humble. And I think it comes down to humility, identifying what you don't know and being willing to find people who can help you and then giving them part of your company. One of the strategies that, that 10% entrepreneurs employ is be an advisor. So instead of investing capital, investing their time. So even if you're a 10% entrepreneur who's a founder and you started a company, say you go out and start that um, that salad chain or you start that tech company or that app uh, that you've always wanted to start, finding people who are experienced and making them advisors in your company and getting them on the other side of the table helping you is really helpful and it more than pays for itself. Yeah, I, I think that would be a, a major stumbling block too. Is is the ability to get the right person? You know, it's the classic getting the right people on the bus and then getting the people on the bus sitting in the right seats. How difficult it is finding the the, the staff or or the partners in a company um, compared to just going out there and saying, "Oh, well, Frank, you, you'd be great. Why don't you become a partner?" You really got to do a little bit of due diligence behind stuff like that and, and research and, and have the ability to walk away from a person too. Oh, most definitely. And, and in fact, it gets harder the further you are from the areas where you have knowledge. So if you're operating well outside of an industry that you understand, it's going to be much harder to find people who can help you because you don't know anybody. And that's why I discourage people from doing that. The closer you're operating to areas, either people that you know or industries that you understand, the more you have the lay of the land. But even so, there are ways, say you still don't have the right connections. There's a couple things you can do. One thing you can do is uh, you can actually go out and find people and just be proactive. And I have a great story in the book about a young entrepreneur who, who spent a, a lot of time in an industry and knew who he wanted. And so he just went to those people at conferences or he emailed them and asked them to meet him for coffee. And he got everybody excited about his business and they all joined him as advisors. So you can be proactive and just build it up. The other thing you can do is say you want to be an angel investor, but you're not really sure where to start and you don't necessarily have the, the right network or you don't have opportunities. There are angel investment groups all over the world. There are over 300 in the United States. And so you can find other people who will teach you alongside them. That's exactly, you know, one of the things that, that I love about entrepreneurship is it's a very open culture where people collaborate and teach each other. And if you want to get involved, there are many different ways to do so. So of course, at the end of the day, before you engage in anything, you need to diligence people and know who you're dealing with and that's obviously uh, something you can't skip. But uh, it, you're not alone. And in fact, there are so many resources out there for people who want to get involved in entrepreneurship that, that a lot of times people tell me, you know, I don't know where to start. And then you spend about five minutes talking to people or looking on the internet and you realize actually it's, there's a lot of resources out there. Yeah, I, I, you know, I know a couple of uh, entrepreneurial groups that I hang out with, um, usually 
the, the one of them is a funding group, and it's amazing what you get. I mean, it's a little bit of a capital investment, one of them, but you're getting tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars of advice and and really amazing information from people that are angel investors, the people that are risking their money every day. And if you present to them and they say, well, where's the bottom line or where's this or where's that? They're telling you what every single investor is going to ask you. So listen to them and execute and try again and practice and practice and practice and hone. It's those type of resources really were not available uh, to the average person 50 years ago. Not at all. And you know, the thing is, if you think, think about what it costs to start a company in the year 2000. Uh, a tech company. Think about the cost of all the servers and the int- and the, e- the email infrastructure and putting the website up and the storage and the computers and long distance phone calls, all the things that used to cost a lot of money. It would be tens if not hundreds of thousands of dollars. Today, you can do all that for almost nothing. And so as a result, capital, money itself has not become the driving force in building businesses in the way that it was. It's really about great advice and great people. And so either as, a, as, an, as an entrepreneur looking for capital or as somebody who wants to be an investor, it's not about the millions anymore. People get involved with very small amounts of money. And that's what makes 10% entrepreneurship possible is the fact that you don't need to be a millionaire to invest in companies anymore. It's become far more democratic and from either the entrepreneurship side or the investor side or the advisor side, lots more people can get involved in entrepreneurship than ever before. Yeah, I think it's just getting your head around it and um, having a realistic outlook. And and if you're a beginner entrepreneur and you're dealing with people that have been entrepreneurs most of their life, it's a big learning curve. But it's it's something that you can do. It's it's an attitude. It's a headspace, and it's letting go of a lot of the things that you consider normal um, in a day to day life. Because an entrepreneur is a twenty four seven existence. It's not like you know, oh, it's five o'clock. I'm going to stop thinking about my business. It's no. It's it's part of your life. And uh, you, you just got to be able to accept that. Oh, definitely. But I think you know, one of the things that I always, for me as personally, I've learned and I've seen this with other people is choosing the right projects, getting involved in things that make sense for you from your skills is really critical to being successful. But what takes you through the long hours and the roadblocks and the frustrations is really having a passion for what you're involved with. So you want to find things that lie at the intersection of what you're good at and what you love because what you're good at will make you successful but what you love will get you to put in the time where it doesn't feel like work. It feels like something you want to be doing and it keeps you there um, and it keeps you engaged and it gives you a lot of joy. Oh yeah, I, I agree 100%. I mean, the whole thing about a business, it, it's entrepreneurial business, it's 100% passion driven, I'm afraid. And uh, if you get it to become an entrepreneur, become a rich uh, person, then you're you're in it for the wrong reasons, and you will fail because after a while, it's like, oh, this is so much work. I'm 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 working too much, and I'm not getting paid anything. This sucks. I quit. And so, if if that's your attitude, and you're going to get there, why start? Just keep on with your day job. No, exactly, and and that's one of the things I didn't realize till I did it. So I always I worked in Wall Street, and I had a really nice job. And on the weekends, I had friends who were doing dabbling in different things, and I thought to myself. Why would you want to spend your free time working? And now that I've got 
ventures that I love and I've done a bunch of things that I really – I invested in a, in a suitcase company. I invested in um, some really cool e-commerce stuff. I invested in a play in London, all these cool things that you know get me much more excited than I could have imagined. And so for me, when I work on them, first of all, I'm working with people I like. So it's like hanging out with people that I enjoy spending time with. But also I feel like I'm doing things that – are super cool and make me a far more well-rounded, interesting person. I feel much more connected to the world around me. So I don't really look at it as work. Yeah, yeah, I'm spending time on it, but it's not like I'm, you know, hauling uh, uh, dirt out of a ditch or something, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, unless that was your job. If that was, if, well, as I'm saying, if that's your passion, then that may be that may be great ten percent for you. But but for me, it's not, and so therefore, my ten percent, I, I found things that I really love doing, and they get me excited, and I don't view them as work. Uh, as an investor, and especially a ten percent style uh, business person, how much do you have to manage things in the, the sense, or you kind of like let it let it flow, get the right people in place, and just let them do their job and don't micromanage? It really depends on how you're engaging. So, for example, as an angel. The real work in that one goes into figuring out if the idea is a good one and if it fits your interests and your criteria, and that can be, you know, can be substantial work figuring that out before you write a check. Once you've actually made the investment, it's really up to you how much time you want to spend on it. I like to spend a lot of time, but if you're a busy person, maybe you know it's very flexible. When it comes to being an advisor, where you're investing your time instead of money, usually you'll sit down with the entrepreneur up front and say, "Okay, I'm going to give you an hour or two a month, and you're going to give me 0.5% of your company." That will I'll get a little bit every month, and then in two years I'll have the whole bit. If you're a founder, it can be many more hours, and it can be something where you're you're much more involved on a daily or weekly basis. And so, what I did personally is I have a whole mix of things in my portfolio. So, for example, one of my uh, a bunch of my ten percent, three of them are in real estate. So, my best friend growing up uh, is a really talented real estate investor. I'm not particularly smart about real estate. I understand some things about it. I give him my money. I invest alongside him. I've found some of the things that we've done, and he's taught me how to do it along the way. But he really manages that on a day-to-day basis. So I have this great investment. I have access to something that is really lucrative for me, but I don't have to worry about it. I can call him up once a week and say, how are our our buildings doing? Other things, I'll be much more involved in the things where I have real expertise. Well, that's that's where the value comes in, and it's understanding what your expertise is, but also when you get new people involved with the company, then they're not people that have your expertise. That's, that's ridiculous. You don't want to be doubling up on stuff like that. Yeah. Well, the thing about your expertise is the more expertise you have in an area, the more efficiently you'll work, right? So if you're looking at investing in a company that you know a lot about the industry, it doesn't take tons of hours for you to figure out if it makes sense. If you have no idea, you could spend days and days and days trying to figure it out and never figure it out. And so I think that is critical when you're looking at bringing on partners, you're partnering with people, understanding what they can bring to the table and understanding if they share your vision and your risk tolerance is really critical because if not, you can end up in conflict or they may you know, invest and then expect to see returns in six months when it may take three years. Now, when you were putting this book together, you know, from notes and all that and you're editing it and you're going over and over and over. What was the section of the book that really you had an aha moment where it was like, wow, I've known this for years, but now I really, really get it. I understand it. So the part that I felt really um, 
when I when I wrote the chapter and I re- reread it, it just felt so. Um, it, it was I was so happy with it, and I just felt like it really distilled everything I'd been doing, and I I was just. It was my longest chapter, actually, is the chapter where I explain how to choose which projects you're going to do. Because I always did that professionally. Um, as an investor, I've been a venture capitalist in my career. And I tried to distill everything I had learned into one chapter. And then when I read it through, I thought to myself, like, this is, I really captured this. And, like, this makes sense to me. And so I think that one for me was, and that's the one that people tend to say to me, you know, when they read that chapter. It, it just all the bells go on for them because it can be a mystery sometimes how people make investments, especially if you haven't done it. And so to sit down and really try to, in a very systematic way, under, to, to explain to the reader how do you make a decision about whether an investment is a good one or not, uh, for me, uh, really, it, it sort of made everything clear. Okay, so let's dive a little into the darker side. How do we deal with critics if people don't believe in you and the naysayers? Yes, well, there's plenty out there. <laughs> um, I, and especially when you write a book. When you write a book, until the book is on the shelves, people somehow don't believe that you're doing it or they sort of think that it's uh, – so I, I, I was really lucky. I got, I got a great publisher, Penguin. And people even, even people who know me well and even knew I was working on it, until they saw it at Barnes & Noble, they didn't take me seriously, which I thought was kind of amazing because um, I was spending a lot of time on it. But <laughs> – but I found a lot of people. I once had a woman, um, super smart, very, uh, very successful woman, uh, who I, I was talking to a friend of friends. And this is not the first time, but I, this story was kind of interesting. She, she said to me, like, there's no way I could ever do this. It's, you know, I just don't have time for it, and I'm so busy, and, and, I, and I just I, – I don't know how you could expect people to do this. And I said, you know, what, well, what do you do? And she said, well, I'm, an, I'm, I'm unemployed right now. I was like, well, if you don't have time when you're unemployed, you'll never have time anyway. This is this is really about mindset. And so what I've tried to do, my sort of anecdote to all of the antidote, I should say, to all of the people who are doubters, was that I went out and found dozens of people who were doing this. I interviewed all of them. Um, they're in ten countries on four continents, and I put their stories in the book because my story is is. Yeah, you may you can look at me and say, well, he's doing this, but I'm just one person, and I have particular circumstances in life that you know are for some people very relatable, and for others not. I wanted to find all kinds of people all over the place, all different walks of life, from the investment banker to the car salesman to the teacher to the fashion designer, all who were doing this, so that the naysayers could hopefully find at least one person in the book who they could relate to. Yeah, well, you know, some naysayers the. That's just the way they are. They're never going to get out of it, and this book is not for them. Yeah, but I'd like them to buy it still. Yeah, exactly. Hey, there's always hope. <laughs> you know, you did mention that you, you reached out to lots of people all over the world. How important is it to have international uh, awareness? For me, it's been really critical. I think it depends. For some people, probably they, they, they could get along just fine without it. For me, I, I my whole career has been international. I love being challenged and having different perspectives. One of the things that makes me a good 10% entrepreneur is that I tend to work with entrepreneurs who are from different places who come to the States and need help uh, getting involved, connecting, finding the right people. And so I'm able to find really great opportunities because of that. I think anything, whether it's being internationally minded or whether it's just getting outside of your comfort zone and meeting people who are really different than you, however you're doing that, it gives you the ability to question your day-to-day existence and question your assumptions, and that always makes you better at everything you do. 
So for, for our listening audience, what should they do today to kind of move toward the 10% uh, approach to starting a business or investing? And What's the best strategy? Because, you know, we're not asking people to leave their job. We're asking them to basically enhance their life. So what can people do to kind of get their head ready other than obviously going out and buying the book? So the three things that I'd say, the first three steps that you can do without spending too much time, without dedicating any real resources, are figuring out what actually are your resources. So the resources that you have to invest as a 10% entrepreneur are time, money, and knowledge, intellectual capital. So sitting down and figuring out, do I, what, kind of, what kind of time can I commit to this? Uh, is the first step. And it may be, it's okay. Maybe you don't have any time. If you don't have any time, then you're not going to start a business and run it on the side, right? You're going to have to be more passive as an investor and advisor. Second is figuring out how much money you can dedicate. And it may not be that you even have capital today, but you save towards doing that. And that's what a lot of people do. But figuring out, do I want to be an angel investor? Do I have money I can put into businesses? Or do I have to use my time as my main driver of investing? And the third is figuring out what you're good at and where you should be spending your time. And that is uh, the, the, the really cool exercise that I recommend here, and this is one that everybody can do starting today, is write a bio of yourself. What's so interesting is I have lots of friends who are brilliant but couldn't tell you what they're good at. And I could tell them. But they just, they, they just kind of forgotten um, because we get caught up in the weeds of our lives. So sitting down and writing a detailed bio of everything you've done and then reading that over and say, oh, that's right. I remember I worked on this industry or I, I did this particular – I was really good at marketing. I've done all these marketing projects or, oh, I'm really good at um, graphic design and identifying the skills that you have, the strengths that you have and the areas um, that you've worked in and then looking at the people that you've interacted with will help you to figure out what kinds of opportunities to engage with and the people and figure out the people that you should be calling to get you started. There's also a very um, useful thing in the appendix, which is the, the managing financial capital. And, and it's basically figuring out how much money you've got, uh, how much money you're spending, uh, and where you actually sit financially. And gosh, I would recommend people just do this exercise regardless if they're going to be uh, investing in anybody because it really gives you some serious perspective on are you actually running a profitable life and and when I say profitable life it's like you go to work you spend 40 or 50 hours at the job do you know how much money it costs for you to actually survive and and have the lifestyle that you have and are you actually losing money and a lot of people don't realize it that every month they're actually losing $50 or $100 or $75 off of their complete paycheck and they're totally unaware of that they think oh yeah I got lots of money well no you actually don't have money plus you got a ton of debt Totally. You know, this is one of the, that, okay, so that appendix in the book, most of the, all the things in the book actually. So it's not, I didn't have some grand plan that I, I came up with this and then in, in, in sort of in a vacuum and then wrote this. I actually, this was just what I did. I basically, over a couple of years, I wanted to do this. I sat down, I did these things. And then when it came time to write the book, I thought back, like, how did I figure out how much money to put or, and I've had a spreadsheet of my net worth and all of my income and stuff like that for basically since I graduated from college. And it's been able – it's been a great way for me to check, like, okay, am I building savings? Am I investing in things that I want to invest in? Where am I financially? And looking at that over time, I have it like every six months for the last like, I don't know, 15 years or something. And so go, that's the exercise that I went through and I put that in the back because it is true. I don't know anybody who does that and it's, it's so important to understand where you're spending your money. I got rid of cable when I looked at mine because I realized it's like, man, I'm spending, I don't even watch TV and I'm spending all this money on cable. Why don't I – it's like it's a lot of – over your life, it's like $100,000. Why don't I put that towards my 10%? 
Well, exactly. And I, and I think a lot of people waste a tremendous amount of their equity because they're just they're just not willing to put in a little bit of effort. I mean, if you can't even put in a little bit of effort to figure out how much money it costs you to survive every month and then sharpen your pencil and try to get that down 10, 15, 20%, then how are you going to survive running a business? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, there's so many things that I could cut out. When I did this exercise, I basically looked at myself and I thought, you know, do I really need to spend like $8 on coffee at Starbucks every day? Is that, is that driving things for me? And I, then I would just drink it at the office, take that money, put it into my savings. Exactly. You can always economize. Not, of course, not always. Maybe you have some unexpected things happening. But in general, a lot of us spend money on things that we don't even really – and time, by the way. Oh, yeah. In way, yeah, I mean, how many hours did you spend on Facebook last week? I mean, I know. I, I, how many hours do you spend reading the news? I, I – I, have basically, you know, done an audit of my time. And when I think about how much time I waste on stuff that is not really driving sort of overall my happiness and my productivity, uh, it's pretty useful to know that. You know how I, I manage uh, Facebook in an unusual way? I give myself uh, one meter, which is, you know, Facebook, this long, 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 long stream, and people can be going for me- hundreds of meters of depth. And if you're thinking, oh, I've got a meter that I can go through, which is basically four or five pages uh, worth of stuff, depending on the size of your monitor. And um, that's that's what you're going to do. And when you get through that, if there's nothing interesting, then you have to stop. Because if you keep scrolling, you're going to find something that's going to get your interest, and then you know you go down the rabbit hole. So if nothing interesting happens in that meter, guess what? Boom. Facebook's over. Time to get back to work. Okay, I'm going to start that t- today. That's amazing. <laughs> and I love that it's metric too because it makes it feel more, uh, I don't know, like a little classier. Yeah, we can call it the, the three-foot rule if you're in the <laughs> States. Um, you know, and the same works well with Twitter, except uh, with Twitter you, you have to, to hone that down to about a foot and a half. Yeah, uh, like 45 centimeters. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Hey, so um, where can people learn more about the book? I mean, obviously they can get it in all the standard places, but I mean, do you have a blog and and places people can reach out? Do you have a a favorite social media platform? Yeah, so uh, on my website, you can actually take a quiz that will help you to determine which kind of 10% entrepreneurship uh, you should, you know, entrepreneur you should become. So patrickmcginnis.com. Get, take the quiz. It'll give you some 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 good guidelines, and then you can find me on Facebook at Ten Percent Entrepreneur, on Twitter at PJ McGinnis, M C G I N N I S, and uh, those are those are the probably the best places. And if you sign up on the website, you can actually download a chapter for free, so you can learn a little bit more and see if this is something that gets you excited. Nice. Any last bit of advice for people that are um, they're frustrated at work, they hate their cubicle, they're angry with their boss because he wastes their time, oh gosh, basically everybody, about how this approach to life will change the way that they are perceived at work, but also how they perceive themselves. And we kind of talked about this a little bit, but I think it's critically important that it, it's it's an attitude shift and it's a lifestyle shift that it could be positive in so many ways. It can be. And what it really comes down to, and I want to leave everybody with this, this takeaway, is it's about autonomy. Many times our frustrations in life, and I know this because I worked in corporate America. And in fact, the reason I wrote this book and started this whole strategy was that I was working at AIG during the financial crisis in 2008. And my company got totally messed up and my stock fell by 97%, the stock that I owned. 
And I felt like I was on a ship adrift at sea and I had no control and it really bothered me. And so what I've learned and what I've seen with other people who do this is this is a really great way to get control of your life and to have autonomy and have a voice in, in, in how you're going to spend your time and what you're going to do and to build something for yourself. And when you do that, you'll be surprised that the little things that made you annoyed at work don't seem so important anymore. And in fact, you start to appreciate your day job because it gives you stability in order to do the things that you love on the side. And so it can be a really powerful catalyst to change the way that you uh, that you interact at your day job, but obviously what you're doing outside as well. We've been talking with Patrick today, the 10% entrepreneur. And you know what? It should be 100% of your life, this book. Live your startup dream without quitting your day job. Best damn advice I've heard all day. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me, Bob. Thanks for listening to the show. And don't forget to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Like us at Facebook forward slash Business Book Talk. Follow the host on Twitter at Bob Garlic. Visit the website businessbooktalk.com for show notes and lots of other great interviews. See you next week.